Hey, thank you for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can go to our website, renewalchicago.com. I pray that this podcast today is a blessing and encouragement to your soul. We are about to jump right back into our awesome series on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most well-known, most famous discourses in all of history that's been remarkably preserved for us. It is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we are continuing in this series. And before we get there, I wanted to mention something that I, uh, I, I've been reading and researching, and I thought, man, that is incredible how much overlap there is with our passage today. So 55 years ago, almost to the day, Almost to the day, 55 years ago, here in Chicago at McCormick Place, Lyndon B. Johnson stood up and he gave a speech. It was one of the opening salvos, if you will, about what he called the Great Society, right? And he, he stood up and he gave a speech right here, five miles away, and this is some of the stuff that LBJ said. He said, we have been called on to build a great society of the highest order. He repeated it, we have been called upon to build a great society of the highest order, a a society not just for today or tomorrow, but for three or four generations to come. And then he says, we are going to build a great society, and we have just begun to fight, for the business of building the great society is undone until, listen, we have attacked and demolished the inequalities that infect us and the inadequacies that afflict us powerful speech. And it was this Chicago speech and others that helped to kick off a flurry of legislative activity that like we've never seen before. You know, the the historian uh, Robert Caro, who has documented much of LBJ's life in like multiple volumes, he says, no one, no president before LBJ and no president since has been able to accomplish so much legislative action. Just a few examples of this, uh, everything that was kicked off with the Chicago speech and other speeches. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Food Stamp Act, the Bilingual Education Act, the Model Cities Program, the Higher Education Act, the Social Security Act, the Economic Opportunity Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, and I could go on. That's a fraction, imagine. It's hard to really uh, even conceive of it right now, right, with all the political deadlock that we have. Like, you can, one administration can accomplish all of this legislation, right? It's remarkable, and, and the title that LBJ gave it is interesting, the Great society. Now, here's what I want to say. When we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, in a way, in a very real way, what Jesus is doing is he is painting a picture of the great society. Not just the great society, the greatest society. It's something that Jesus refers to over and over and over again. He calls the greatest society the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Right, he says, you know, the the kind of stuff that LBJ and others wanted to accomplish in the 60s and made great progress on. The kind of stuff that they wanted to accomplish, Jesus takes to another level that is much, 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 much greater. You know, the the stated purpose of LBJ's greatest society, this I'm quoting, the main goal of the great society is, quote, the total elimination of poverty and racial injustice. What a lofty goal. Now, when Jesus talks about the greatest society, the kingdom of heaven, you better believe there's the total elimination of poverty and racial injustice and every other kind of injustice that we can imagine. You better believe that there are people who understand and know each other and live together in harmony, right? You better believe that there's relationship between God and people. This is the greatest society, right? All right, so we're gonna pick up right where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, we looked at the Beatitudes, if you remember, those blessing statements, the, first, the opening verses of Matthew chapter five. Then Jesus just talks very candidly. He says, also the blessed person can receive persecution. And then Jesus moves into the salt and light. The blessed person is the kind of person that brings flavor and clarity to the world around him, right? And then we move into verse 17, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Uh, let's turn in your Bibles if you have it, turn in your Bible app if you've got it, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. And let's stand together as I read. Matthew chapter five, verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teach, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You guys may be seated. The kingdom of heaven, there it is. The greatest society, if you will. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven, this, this, this kind of society, this kind of kingdom that, that Jesus talked about so frequently. Sometimes he said kingdom of God. This, this ideal way of life. Kingdom of heaven, life under the rule of a good and benevolent king, right? That's what the kingdom of heaven is, and that's what Jesus is unpacking here. But when he opens his statement, this whole paragraph, what does he say? He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, capital L, and the prophets, capital P. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Now, this is strange. At least it's a little bit strange to me, so we're gonna unpack it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. We're going to look at three meanings of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, okay? Three. There are more, but our time is limited. We're going to look at three. Here are the three meanings, what it means that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. First, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets means, it must mean, that the law and the prophets are important. He's connecting them to his purpose, to his mission. They must be important, Right? Number two, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets means that they are not all important. You catch what I mean there? If they need fulfillment, they are insufficient on their own, right? So Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, connecting them to his purpose and his mission means that they're important. The fact that they need fulfilling means that they're not all important, okay? And number three, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets means that the greatest society, the kingdom of heaven, is accessible. It's here, Jesus said sometimes. It is near. It is at hand. The greatest society, the kingdom of heaven, is accessible. It's possible. It's present. Okay? So those are our three, our three um, points that we're going to draw out of Jesus' teaching here today. Let's just start with the first one. Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets means that the law and the prophets are important. You know, I was talking to a friend this week, and we were talking about this passage and it, we're just like, it's kind of, it, it just seems a little bit weird. It's a little bit non sequitur, right? You have the blessing statements, all of Jesus, everything Jesus is talking about, very deeply happy person, the blessed person, and then the salt and light. And then he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading the first verses, I'm not thinking, has he come to abolish the law and the prophets? 
right? It, it just feels abrupt in the middle of the, it's like literally in the middle of a sermon, of a discourse. Don't think this. And, and, and what I would submit to you is I, I believe that the first listeners, the first audience would have been thinking that. And so he's addressing his first listeners. Now, why would they have thought that? All of the religious elites, all of the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus mentions here would have been talking incessantly about the law, the Old Testament law, and the Old Testament prophets. The commandments of the law, the wisdom of the prophets, and they would have, they, they, they built entire systems of additional rules and practice. They were excellent rule followers. They built systems of these rules, and that is what they talked about. And here you have Jesus standing up and giving his most famous discourse, and he opens up, and he doesn't talk about the rules. It's interesting. Instead, he talks about the character of the kind of person who is blessed by God. And he uses things that would have been very different to talk about the blessed person than what the scribes and the Pharisees would have used. The scribes and the Pharisees would have said, you want to know how somebody's a really great rule follower? You look at their wealth and at their success, and you know that they're being blessed by God. And Jesus stands up and says, the blessed person mourns. The blessed person is merciful. The blessed person is humble. Do you see? This is what Jesus is doing. And so it is logical for the original listeners to say, is this a new thing? Is he throwing in the trash all of the old moral law and all of the old wisdom of the prophets? And Jesus addresses it directly. He says, do not think <laughs> that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, no, I've come to fulfill them. And he goes on and he, and he is so explicit. So as to say, if you even take away the tiniest part of them, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. This is amazing. He's, he's not saying that they are unimportant. No, no, no. He is saying that they are critically important, this old moral law and this old wisdom of the prophets, right? Now, let's just take a moment as an aside and talk about the Old Testament law and prophets because, again, we're separated. We're not our, our whole society. We're not a nation state like Israel was in trying to figure out and, and apply a theocratic understanding of the Old Testament, so the law would have been the first, principally, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is what Jesus' scriptures were. And the, the prophets would have been all of those great prophets like Elijah and Amos and Isaiah and others, many others. And Jesus is saying all of the great Hebrew wisdom literature of the prophets, all of the great moral law and teaching of the law is mine. He's saying that. Is it, it belongs to me. The whole counsel of God belongs also to God the Son. <laughs> Do not think that I have come to abolish that. It's mine. It's about me. It's pointing to me. It is important. Listen, every, the entire sacrificial system that was in the Old Testament pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make. Do you see? All of the moral laws and good and, and right ethics that were outlined in the Old Testament moral law, are, Jesus is the only one that fulfilled perfectly. It points to him. All of the things that the prophets talked about, these messages from God to the people, many of them were explicitly messianic, talking about the coming Messiah and King, Jesus. The Old Testament law and prophets were about him. The law is important. Now, Jesus recognized something that, that happens in every generation, right? Somebody takes a selection, a snippet of Jesus' teaching and uses it to reinforce their bias, right? This, is, this happened to Jesus so much that he's mentioning it in his own sermon on the mount. He's saying, don't think that I've come to abolish that. 
Don't you dare take a snippet of my teaching and go back to your friends and take your pet issue and say, Jesus doesn't care about that. Don't you dare take a snippet of my teaching and go back to your friends and say, this is all Jesus cares about because he says this. Do you see what I mean? All of the law, the whole counsel of God is it belongs to Jesus. He is not about any single person's pet issue. He has all of the law, all of morality, all of the ethical standards are under him. Why? You know, um, many, it's common today to hear people talk about ethical standards and they, they summarize them like, well, they're good, but they're, they, they're, they're made, they're manufactured. Ethical standards are something that any society can make so that they can operate well. And one society's might be different than another society's, yours might be a little bit different than mine, right? The point is we have ethical standards, but the standards themselves are a bit arbitrary. Jesus stands up and says, the standards are important because they're not arbitrary. Because the, the, the moral standards of the Old Testament are important because they are an expression of the very character of God. They're eternal. They're timeless. The moral standards of the Old Testament predate the law. Think about this. So you have Moses who codifies the law, puts it into legislation, if you will. But it preexisted that. God had moral standards for Abraham and Noah, right? And Adam and Eve, that why? Because Precisely because the moral standards are not arbitrary. They are expressions. They are out, outcroppings of the, the character and goodness of God himself. They're not just inventions of any particular society. Jesus says, do not think, therefore, that I have come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Right? So first, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets means, it must mean, that they are important. Second, Jesus fulfilling them means that they're not all important. It must mean that because he needs to fulfill them, because they are insufficient on their own. You know, the moral law can guide, it can build up, it can create kind of a foundation for a society to function well. Any society that has any kind of functioning has some sort of morality, right? Even if, it's, even if we're somewhat dysfunctional, the fact that there is function at all means that there is some moral law embedded in society, right? But the moral law cannot accomplish everything that we need it to accomplish. That's what Jesus is saying. He, it needs fulfillment. You know, again, the, the 1960s, I'm not trying to single, we could do this about lots of administrations, I'm not trying to single out one, but let's go back to the 60s because I started there. Uh, it, it's also instructive here. You have this incredible incredibly productive wave of meaningful legislation that happens under LBJ and the Great Society Initiative, right? And yet, and yet, he's not principally known for the Great Society. LBJ and his administration are principally known for what? Vietnam. You know, one historian puts it this way, despite the enormous amount of legislation passed by Congress during his administration, Johnson is seldom remembered as a champion for the underprivileged in the at-risk. Instead, he is better known as the commander-in-chief who forced America into an unwinnable war that resulted in over 58,000 American military deaths and over a million Vietnamese deaths. Some put it as high as three million. Listen, here's the point. This is instructive. Great legislation is insufficient on its own. 
It is insufficient on its own. Great law, legislation, can, can create a standard. It can tell us when we fail that standard, but it has no power to change the human heart. It has no power to change the human heart. And so you can have this astonishingly strange and bitterly ironic thing that the same administration in Congress responsible for the Great Society Initiative is also the one that is responsible for one of the greatest tragedies and follies in military history in the United States. Because law is not enough. Because great legislation is not enough, we need, we need something else. We need somebody to fulfill this thing. Law can point to our wrongs. It cannot provoke us to our rights. Do you see? Law can tell us where we fail, but it cannot transform our hearts. It cannot make us new kinds of people. That is what, why we need Jesus. You know, one Bible scholar, he points to this passage and he says, if there is perhaps no other passage in the New Testament when Jesus is talking that, that so radically summarizes, he, it's like Jesus is reigning clarity about all of human history before and saying, this is how it's gonna make sense in me. All of the law that, that is good, all of the prophetic wisdom that is good, it is ultimately about me and it is ultimately fulfilled in me. We need the law fulfilled, not just legislated. Now, here's what I mean. When Jesus, he, he's, he's kind of doing the opening, he, he's opening up the next section of his sermon right here, and we're gonna see this over the next few weeks, where he makes a statement, he makes a legal statement, you have heard it said, uh, do not commit adultery, for example, but I tell you, Watch your heart and your thought life. Do you see? He's taking the moral law that is good and right, and he's not lowering the bar. No, no. He's raising it radically. He's taking the law, and he wants to drive it to the heart. He doesn't want mere externalities. He doesn't want mere behaviorisms. He doesn't want only behavioral change. He wants new people. He wants a new citizenry for the kingdom of heaven. Imagine, he wants, wants to drive, this is fulfilling the law. And he, he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees who are listening to him, probably mixed up in the crowd, right? And he says, I tell you what, Eve, if your righteousness does not surpass the religious elites, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Imagine, the religious elites were so concerned with appearances, with externalities, with behaviorisms, with little rules. They, they built entire systems of rules to make themselves look good. And yet, that's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. He wants the heart to be different. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, watch your heart. If you're even angry with somebody, you're in danger of sinning against them. He's driving the law to the heart of the person and then and only then is the law fulfilled. Do you see the scribes and the Pharisees? They, they, they did the external things, but they were motivated by pride. When the heart is changed, when the person is transformed, the motivation changes also. Uh, it's, it's a total conversion. There's a reason we use that word in Christianity, conversion. It's like complete transformation of somebody to where the, the, the moral law of God, the wisdom of his scriptures is so imprinted on the heart of a believer that it changes how they think about the world. It changes how they interact with other people. Do you see? The fulfillment 
of the law. This is different than just, um, when we think about morality, uh, often today it's like, pick your pet moral thing and pursue that and be passionate about that and yell at the people who don't have that same pet thing, right? A lot of it is that. You know, I heard a preacher recently say, you know, we live in a society that is rudderless. And, and to illustrate that, he's like, went through different decades and how like what was deeply moral this decade is deeply immoral the next, right? This is just a rudderless society. This is a silly example. When I grew up, when I was a kid, we learned that using plastic bags was better for the environment than paper. <laughs> Why? Because we are saving trees, right? When I was in high school, there was a student having a relationship with a teacher and we thought that they were exemplars of sexual re- liberation. It's, it's, it's difficult to believe just a few years later in light of Me Too that that could even be a thing, a rudderless society, right? We need something else. We need someone else who, who, who knows and who has lived and exemplified the true and eternal pre-existing all of us kind of moral law who, will, who, who, who lives it utterly and completely and has never failed it, who will fulfill it. (laughs) Do you see? We need the law transforming our hearts, not just our behaviors. Jesus steps into the scene and he says, when he says, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it sounds nothing like the Instagram post with a pretty picture of somebody on a beach with words overlaid that say something like, just becoming a better version of myself every day. It's something so much more radical. It's the transformation of a person. They were this way and now they're totally that way, do you see? It's something that we cannot accomplish on our own. We need Jesus to step in and fulfill what we cannot. Three meanings of Jesus um, fulfilling the law and the prophets. One, uh, it means that it must mean that the law and the prophets are important. Two, it must mean that they are not all important because they're not sufficient on their own. And three, finally, it means that the greatest society, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. Now I smile because that's amazing. Jesus stood up numerous times and made, made statements like this. And we, we read four verses here today. Three times he mentions the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to tell us something. He, he makes numerous statements. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whenever we see heaven, we, at least I do, often think about the afterlife. Jesus is saying, it's here. <laughs> There's something that happens now, at least that begins to happen now. In somebody who believes me, who has, who has asks me to help drive morality into the heart and not just into behavior. Do you see? This is what makes the greatest society possible. This text is so central. This part of Jesus' teaching is so central because it literally, it, Jesus is clarifying how the kingdom of heaven is accessible to us. Now, this isn't readily evident. We again have to put on, we have to like go into history a little bit. Throughout human history, generally speaking, and then particularly for the nation of Israel, there was this, there was this setup with how people related to God, right? So you have the people, you have God, you have this gap in between. When the people wanted to worship God, they went through the priesthood. 
When they wanted to petition God, they went through the priesthood. When they wanted to ask for forgiveness, they went through the priesthood, often through sacrificial systems, right? When God wanted to speak to his people, he went through the prophets, the law and the prophets. Do you see? I hope you can see this, what's happening here. <laughs> when, when people wanted to talk to God, they went through the legal scholars, the priests. When God wanted to talk to the people, he went through this class of people called the prophets. He gave them a message and they spoke to the people. Jesus steps in and he lifts, he takes all of people. You've heard of social uplift before. This is the greatest social uplift program ever created, right? Jesus takes all of the people and he lifts them up. He says, anyone, anyone can be a prophet or priest in my kingdom. Anyone has access to talk to me directly. Imagine the Almighty God has made a way for anyone who believes. The, 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 new, the people in the New Testament, they looked at this and they said, this is unbelievable. Peter said, this is like a priesthood of everyone, of all believers. Anyone can talk to God. Anyone can go directly to God and ask for forgiveness. Anyone can worship as we just did together, directly to God. There's no intermediary. Anyone who believes can receive God's good word, like we're doing right now, <laughs> from his Bible, in his congregation, in his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, my friends, is at hand. Do you see it? Do you participate it? Where is your citizenship, you could ask? Now, we know, I must, I gotta be honest, like we know, that we're not totally in the kingdom of heaven. All you gotta do is turn on the news. All you gotta do is be ticked off by MSNBC or Fox News, depending on which camp you're in. <laughs> All you gotta do is read the Chicago Tribune. And we're like, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is at hand. But it's not totally here. It hasn't come into its fullness. It's not complete. I don't want us to miss that it is still here. Anyone Anyone who believes in Jesus who says, I need you to fulfill what I cannot. Anyone who says, I will live under the rule of the king. That person is a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Now and forever. Right, this is what Jesus is saying. In, in World War II, this is one of my favorite things uh, about World War II. There's a lot of great movies um, that feature this sort of dynamic where you have a, uh, a camp, a German prisoner camp, and you, the camps that were done for officers were a lot nicer than the other prison camps, right? So you have the officers of the Allies in German prison camps. Now, because they're in German prison camps, does that mean that they are citizens of Germany? No. And, and you can see them living out actively, like still, even as prisoners, they're, they're, they're actively trying to, uh, um, to foil a lot of German plots, in the prisons, right? Sometimes they're just doing things just to, so, that, so that it requires more resources in the prison camp, so they're taking resources from German front lines. Do you see what I mean? Their citizenship to them was clear. The fact that they changed geographic location did not change their citizenship. Listen, it is the same for any Christian. The, the fact that we are still in a fallen world does not change our citizenship. We can still actively live out we can still actively live out the Christian truths and the moral law written on our hearts. We can still actively try to foil the plans of the enemy. And it's important that we do so. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Be, be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And it is possible because he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He is the only one who did all of the law right all of the time. He is the only one who took on all of the things that we did wrong and gave to us all of the things that he did right. You could phrase it like this. I don't want to overstep my illustration here, but he took on all of the folly and tragedy of our Vietnams and extended to us, as if it was our own, all of his perfect and righteous legislation. Do you see? That is social uplift. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus means when he says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is a centerpiece of the life and ministry of Jesus. I want to conclude with a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. I just read it again this week, and I, I thought, man, I, it's moving to me. It's from a man named David Bosch. He died a number of years ago. South African, and if you consider South Africa, and it's very, very profoundly difficult and um, unequal history, it's even more remarkable that it came from a South African. He's talking about this, this tension between we are people who, who live in the city, if we believe in Jesus, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and yet we're still in a fallen world. And this is what David Bosch says. Quote, we live within the creative tension between the already and the not yet, forever moving closer to the orbit of the former. We Christians are an anachronism in this world. Not anymore what we used to be, but not yet what we are destined to be. We are too early for heaven, yet too late for the world. We live on the borderline between the already and the not yet. We are a fragment of the world to come, God's colony in a human world, his experimental garden on earth. We are like crocuses in the snow a sign of the world to come, and at the same time, a guarantee of its coming. My friends, isn't that the kind of kingdom you want to be a part of? The kingdom of heaven, the greatest society. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I am freshly overwhelmed by your goodness. by all that you accomplish on our behalf. Time and time again, we come to you. Those of us in the room who, who are already believers, we come to you and we just praise you and we say thank you. You invite us in out of the mess of this world and invite us into citizenship in your kingdom. Those of us in this room who are not yet believers or who, who are just unsure of what they believe, Father, I ask that you would give them understanding they would know that forgiveness and new life and radical transformation is extended to them. Pray for them right now. You know them personally. They are loved to the depths. They are loved to the skies. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. Amen. Thanks again for listening to our podcast today. I pray again that it was a blessing and encouragement to your soul. And I hope to see you at one of our services at 10 a.m. Take care. God bless you. Uh-huh.